Hello and welcome to the Parson Brown Podcast, where we talk theology, nerdy goodness, and even some pop culture here and there. I ask that you join us on this journey, have a good time, and thanks for listening. Well, we're here today, today, whatever whatever time you're listening to, with uh, Aaron Simmons. Uh, he has recently written the book, uh, Camping with Kierkegaard, and we'll talk a bit about that as we get going. But just a few things about Aaron. He was actually born in Tennessee, uh, where, where we're kind of based now, uh, but has been all over, and he's now in the Carolina Mountains, So, uh, which is going to feature heavily uh, in the conversation of the book. He is now professor of philosophy at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, specializing in philosophy of religion, existentialism, and phenomenology. I keep wanting to sing that song uh, from Sesame Street or the Muppets here. Um, He's very widely published, uh, has written several books, including Kierkegaard's God in the Good Life, God in the Other, Reexamining Deconstruction and Determinate Religion. And of course, uh, the most recent, uh, Camping with Kierkegaard, which is a general audiences book. Um, he's been on numerous podcasts, an avid mountain biker, trout fisherman, and uh, married to his wife, Vanessa, for 22 years, um, and has a 13-year-old son, Atticus, who he says loves parkour and skateboarding. So looking really forward to talking about this new great a broad audience book, uh, Camp with Kierkegaard. I was on the launch team, so full disclosure there. I got to read an early copy, but um, I can tell you it's a great book. Um, I love Kierkegaard. I did not in college, and I'll talk a bit about how I got to Kierkegaard and philosophy in general. But I wanted to first ask Aaron here to to tell us a little bit about why Camping with Kierkegaard, the purpose of this book, and what kind of birthed it. Yeah, well, Brandon, thank you so much for having me. It is my honor to be with you and uh, anybody who resides in Tennessee, the home of my birth, and to be honest, where I hold every place else kind of up to that standard. Um, and I will say the the Western Carolinas are pretty awesome too. Uh, so Pisgah National Forest has kind of slid right in by the Hiawassee River uh, and the Ocoee Valley and stuff. So it's awesome to be with you. So I I wrote this book as a bit of a deviation from the dozen or so books I had done in the past, either authored or edited, because when COVID hit, it it was basically one of those moments where no matter who we are, no matter what our jobs are, no matter where we found ourselves, the world, you know, cracked, right? There was a, a different mode of moving forward. Things were not able to be the way that they had been previously. And for me, this was an opportunity to say, well, shoot, if we really are stuck at home for a year or really have to social distance for months upon end, what is it that I can do to make the most of this? And to be honest, I had kind of two visions of why that mattered. One was at the time I had a uh, fourth grader. So I guess he'd what, like nine-ish, my son. And so I was trying really hard to say, how do I let this time be something that he doesn't see as crisis. He sees it as something's different. I got to stay home and go to school on, you know, my computer, but he's still having fun. We're finding ways to keep his joy levels up. 
and we're not letting him sort of, you know, slide into the despair that I think was emotionally and mentally wrecking for so many young folks. But the other thought was I had all these students in my college courses who were reaching out to me looking for advice and looking for how to navigate stuff. And hey, you say philosophy is super practical. What does it say to where we are? And so as a result of all of that, I really not intentionally, but just trying to respond to those people as much as I could, started a YouTube channel, Philosophy for We Find Ourselves. And, you know, it took off in ways that I wasn't expecting. Um, you know, again, I'm not like giving Mr. Beast or Good Mythical Morning a run for their money, but it, you know, found an audience and there was a little bit of traction. And so I started thinking, wow, maybe finding ways to put philosophy into the spaces where it's more accessible is a good idea. And so that's ultimately what led to a general audience book. But more personally, I you know, I had a year at home and what am I going to do with the year? It was like, well, shoot, the safest thing we can do is camp and hike and be away from people, but be outdoors. And so I've always loved camping. I've always loved hiking. I've always loved trout fishing. Mountain biking was new. That's something I got into during COVID. But I went to the mountains and I took my son to the mountains and I took my wife to the mountains and we absolutely loved it. Now, I will say my wife loves it more at like a fancy Airbnb next to a sexy downtown. You know, my son uh, loves it so long as there's Wi-Fi covered so he can watch YouTube shorts all night. But for me, there's nothing as joy inducing and important to remembering the human condition as being able to lay down on the ground in a tent and hear the crickets sing you to sleep and wake up the next morning and be responsible for, you know, turning the fire on and making some breakfast and navigating the world in a slower pace. And so this book was my attempt to not say, well, I'll take a break from work for a couple of years and then go back to my job. It was my attempt to say, well, what if the work I do as philosopher starts speaking to different aspects of existence and this was the result. And so I've been unbelievably humbled by the reception it's received. Uh, people continue to reach out to me. I'm getting emails daily. The reviews on Amazon have been just absolutely staggering. And thanks to people like you who are on the launch team, it, it has you know really done well quick. And so the first week, it went number one in mountain biking, number one in camping, number one in ethics, and number one in philosophy and religious studies. And so I'm honored. I'm humbled. And clearly there is an audience interested in thinking deeply, thinking philosophically, but doing so in a way that doesn't require a PhD and a bunch of years, you know, studying Danish and German to be able to access these ideas. And so I'm, I'm pretty stoked to be able to invite people along with me as I'm trying to figure out how to live into the ideas I've taught for decades. That's awesome. So why Kierkegaard and why the mountains? <laughs> Man, that's such a good question. So Kierkegaard, it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be Kierkegaard. So for me, it does because I, in grad school, discovered Kierkegaard under the tutelage mentorship of a guy named David Kangas, who I talk about pretty extensively in the book. And Kangas invited me to think about Kierkegaard as the type of thinker who took seriously all the stuff I was wrestling with as a 22, 23-year-old early grad student who had come out of a evangelical background 
who was wrestling with becoming an academic philosopher, struggling with, you know, all of that tension. And David's response was, look, Kierkegaard kind of lived the same general struggle. And there's passages in Kierkegaard when he was 22 years old, where he says, I've got to figure out what's true for me. I've got to figure out what to do with my life. And that's hard to turn your back on when you're literally asking the same questions and you start reading a guy who's doing the same thing. And he had come from a severely religious upbringing. His father was, um, I don't know if fundamentalist is the right term, but he was religiously intense, shall we say, uncompromising. And, you know, he, he was trying to figure out how to navigate his adulthood in light of the fact that he still was identifying as Christian, but it wasn't the same Christianity that he had been handed. And the same was true for me. I had gone to a Pentecostal Christian college, Lee University. I'm, I'm proud of that education. But then I landed at Florida State University to watch the Seminoles win some national championships. And while I was there, ran into Nietzsche and ran into Dostoevsky and Heidegger and Freud and Marx and Beauvoir and all of these different thinkers. But Kierkegaard was the one of all of them. And I, I genuinely have drawn on them all. They're all in the book. But Kierkegaard was the one who, and I mean this seriously, showed me how to be a Christian on the other side of the Christianity that I had been handed as a child. Now, I've been blessed. My parents were academics. My grandparents were unbelievably smart and reflective and critical. So I did not grow up fundamentalist. But I did grow up in spaces where there were tendencies in that direction. And so though I would say I attribute my philosophical proclivities to growing up in the church where these questions could be asked, but they were asked at my dinner tables, right? They were, they were asked b between my parents and my aunts and uncles. And I was kind of privy to this at six and seven and eight years old. And so when I ran into Kierkegaard, it was like, oh shoot, this is what I've always thought. Faith doesn't mean certainty. Faith isn't some sort of dismissal of the human condition. Faith is not even exclusively religious. It's a way of living purposively. And atheism or Buddhism or seeking without having a general sense of where it is you're going, all of these are plausible ways to navigate human life in light of the fact that we're free. And Kierkegaard gets that. In fact, I'd suggest his pseudonyms are ways of trying to perform that in his writing. And so why Kierkegaard? Well, in many ways, it was because I read Kierkegaard at the time in my life where he was deeply impactful on the life I chose to live. And so when I went to the mountains and started thinking about living a life on purpose, it was not that I actively thought, all right, which thinker? It was like, well, Kierkegaard had already shaped me so deeply. There was no one else that was going to show up in that way. That said, the alliteration, um, I, I accredit to Trip Fuller, who suggested, oh, you should write a book on Kempo Kierkegaard. And I liked the I liked the kind of sound. And so I uh, went with Kierkegaard. But why the mountains? Why camping? That's actually because what the book argues is rather than seeking a success logic for our lives, where we define meaning in terms of checking boxes and external applause, right? The more money, the bigger car, the bigger house, the better job. You know, when, when those become the status symbols that we can check off to signal that we have been important or that life was meaningful, that necessarily means 
that we think people who can't check those boxes have less significant, less meaningful, less important social identities. And that seems fundamentally wrong. And I would suggest radically anti-Christian, given this sort of existential way that I approach my Christian faith in light of Kierkegaard. So I kept looking for years, and this predates the book, probably 10 years. I had been looking for categories to try to think about, well, if this, it's not that I'm opposed to success, but I am opposed to the value theory that success tends to name as making our lives important. What would be the alternative? Well, it's not failure. <laughs> like that, that's a bad idea. No one's going to buy that book. How to fail in 20 easy steps. I mean, so I, I decided that for me, it was Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King who had already introduced this other option, which was we are not called to be successful. We are called to be faithful. And so I started leaning into what does faithfulness mean, not religiously, though that's certainly something true in my life. And I hope for you know others as well, but existentially as part of the human condition. So I gave a TEDx talk probably eight years ago now, maybe a little bit more, where I it was called The Failure of Success. And that was the first time that I sort of publicly launched these alternatives. And I advocated a life of faithfulness as really important for recentering how we understand existence. And what this book then did is took that set of options and deployed them as possible answers, possible ways of life in response to a fundamental question, which is the fundamental guiding question of philosophy and also this book, what is worthy of your finitude? And that question for me was not an abstract philosophical idea. It was what I was asking in you know March and April and May of 2020, trying to figure out, look, are we just biding time until we can get back to the office? Because the office is where I find meaning. Am I just kind of trying to keep my head down and not go crazy long enough that I can get back to being a productive member of society and radically increase the GDP? Like, it seemed like something was wrong. And I kept having all these students reach out saying, I don't know what to do with my life. Everything's ruined. And I was like, well, why? I mean, I get there's a pandemic and it's frustrating, but why? It was like, well, I just, I just found out my internship's been canceled. What am I going to do? And I was like, wow, if I've allowed my students to think their internship is what gives them meaning, I have messed up. And so I decided for me, that I needed to get to the mountains. I had gotten my PhD, in fact, to go fishing. My dad's a professor or was a professor. He fished like 80, 90 days a year. <laughs> and I loved this. Now, I didn't understand he had tenure and that was a thing that you know he didn't do the first 20 years of his career. But I thought, yeah, I'll go get a PhD. I'll be a professor. I want a trout fish. Unfortunately, I spent 20 years working 80 to 100 hours a week, writing a whole lot of books and a whole lot of articles and being president of a bunch of professional societies and doing things that I think were important, but you know, not really being with my son and not spending a ton of time with my wife and literally sleeping at the office. I used to keep a cot in my office in order to sleep at the office because that way I could get more done and not have to worry about driving back and forth to home. And it was never workaholicism. It was me doing the best I could do, given the things I thought were important. And then when COVID hit, I realized, wow, if I can't find the most importance being with my family in the midst of a crisis, 
I've messed up. And so I decided to start fishing again, to take up mountain biking. And it was those activities that then anchored me into maybe what a life of faithfulness could look like for me. I do not, and I try to make this clear in the book, say that that's the life of meaning for others, right? It might be simply prioritizing a little bit more something over the thing that you have tended to fall into by default. It might be, as Wendy Farley, the great feminist theologian says, it might be just staying in your car for like a minute and a half more in the mornings and letting that song finish before you get out and head to the office. It also might just be recognizing, hey, I I love what I do in my office and I want to do it as well as I can, but I'm not wrecked by the idea that if I lost this job, I don't know who I am, right? So all of that is why mountains were my name for what faithfulness invited. But, and this is also important, um, I try to make clear that I realize lots of people don't have the privilege that I have. You know, my, my wife and I make enough money that I could buy the camping equipment and get a good bike and get some body armor and some full face helmets and head to the mountains. A lot of people are working two, three jobs and struggling to decide between food and healthcare. So in no way am I flippant about, hey, you know, just just drop everything and quit your jobs and let's just go party. This book is not an attempt to reject the importance of work or the idea that excellence matters or to ignore the human condition. It's actually trying to say we've messed up if we've allowed the human condition not to be defined by the importance of decision for people who find themselves in disadvantage. So how could we rethink society to advantage all of us in ways that make this human existential possibility for living in good faith really an actuality in a daily way? So Kierkegaard, because that's that's where I found myself, the mountains, that's where I rediscovered what mattered. You know, that's good. I like that. And and you you talk about faithfulness a lot, um, and you talked about faith. And one of my favorite things happens very early in the book, and it's especially because of my Wesleyan holiness context that I'm in now, that, you know, when, when we think of faith in that context, it, there's a responsibility to it. Um, Randy Maddox wrote a book, Responsible Grace, because in Wesleyanism, we we respond. We respond to what God's doing. We respond to what we see God's doing in the world. So faith is way more than an assent to truth or even a belief. And your very simple definition in the book um, just resonates so much with me that I've shared it with some of our classes already, and I shared it in a couple of essays I've written recently. But I, I wanted to let you explain um, your definition of faith and, and what that means. Yeah. Thanks for asking me that because for what it's worth, like if, if I had to point to the two things that I am most excited about with the book, I mean, other than just people finding some sort of resource in it and helping people that, that of course is number one, but the two things philosophically, like the ideas that I think matter, one is the question, what's worthy of your finitude? In fact, today I got a, a text from a real good friend of mine. He is a pastor and a professor. And he said, dude, I've been reading your book with my students and really leaning into this, what's worthy of your finitude question and making them wrestle with that and see the stakes of it. And he said, three of them have just quit their athletic programs. And we're trying to figure out like, 
how to find funding because they're losing their scholarships. And I was like, dude, that's not the goal. Like, I don't want them to radically run away. And he's like, no, no, no. It's amazing because for the first time, they feel like that that question really invited them to wrestle with not just what job are you going to go get? What you know, employment is it that will name you? But what really anchors you? As Whitman says, we loaf and invite our souls. When we invite our souls to say what matters, where do we then come down? And I, I, I really love that question. And number two, it's my definition of faith, which I've never heard the way I define it, but it certainly owes to a litany, a cloud of witnesses, a whole host of thinkers without whom I, I don't think it would be possible to articulate. But my definition of faith is simply risk with direction. And the idea here is that the two aspects of faithfulness are anchored in the two aspects of the human condition that I think are most important. Number one, we are vulnerable. We live lives that are finite. Therefore, we've got to make the most of the time we have because we don't have an unlimited amount of it. And this also means that eventually we're going to die. And so all of our projects, all of our activities, all of the beliefs that we hold will eventually stop. So there's got to be something about holding them, engaging in such activities, navigating the world that makes some some significance, makes something better. How so? What do we make of that? And so the risk is my way of announcing or countenancing this vulnerability that defines us all. And then the direction is my way of trying to nod my hat to this deep, deep relationality that also defines us. So we are vulnerable and we are relational. So we must embrace risk. Now we can do that like my buddy, Dustin, who jumps out of airplanes for some silly reason, uh, but we don't have to do it that way. My idea is not risk in the sense of, you know, go grab a mountain bike and jump off a 20 foot gap or something. My notion of risk is just whenever you make decisions, Whenever you decide what will matter, how to move forward in life, you are necessarily deciding not to go other ways that are so are reasonable. You, you've, you've recognized that there's a risk you could have done otherwise. And this, for what it's worth, directly comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, when he decides to go back to Germany, and he's got this opportunity to stay at Union Theological Seminary, work with Niebuhr, and he basically says, look... I, I know what I must do, but I can't do so in security. I can't do so with a guarantee. And he disagrees with Martin Luther, who says, here I stand, I can do no other. Bonhoeffer says, I know what I must do. I can't do so with a guarantee. We've got to remember we always could do otherwise. That's what I mean by risk. So that vulnerability that you ain't got an unlimited amount of time, so make your decisions matter, be purposive, be intentional, couples with, and you don't take risk alone. <laughs> the decisions you make impact others. And so living faithfully, living in good faith is to embrace risk, own that, not give in to the idol of certainty. And yet realize that your directionality, the orientation that you pursue, what you think will matter, what David Foster Wallace will call what's worthy of worship, these are always decisions that shape the world others inherit. And so for me, faithfulness is a matter of being vulnerable and being relational, 
such that risk with direction can play out in religious ways, but they do not have to. And that awareness, my goodness, like how many of my white evangelical friends and and community members and church, you know, partners would say wrong. You're a person of faith if you are appropriately religious, if you can sign a quote unquote faith statement. And what I want to do is say fundamentally wrong. (laughs) That's not faith. That's a particular direction. And it's not guaranteed. Even if there's something like blessed assurance, again, my own Wesleyanism showing up here, I don't think blessed assurance is the same as algorithmic certainty. And so whenever we downplay the risk, it fosters a loss of humility and a loss of hospitality. And we end up living lives that are insular and lives that are defined by fear. I am encouraging people to be faithful in whatever sense that means for them, whatever risk they think is worth taking and direction they want to pursue, such that we realize the real choice is between living intentionally and living unreflectively as if something were obvious. There's precious little that's obvious about how to live. And I actually think that that's a profound realization, though it does, you know, foster a kind of um, temptation, maybe, to realize that you can't hate people with whom you disagree, usually. Right. I'm not talking here about, you know, racism and sexism, but like, man, like if we disagree about theories of the atonement or we disagree even about the best ways to make sense of eschatology or maybe we disagree about politics. Whoa. It's not that those people are irrational. It's that they are standing reasonably in a different direction that's just as risky as where I stand. And for me, that's why I actually see the ideas of this book fostering and inviting a kind of resurgence of deliberative democratic virtues as well. No, that's, that's great. And, and that's, that's why I love that, that phrase, you know, I just love that risk with direction because I think it just speaks so much into who we are. And, and you touched on the, the other big idea of the book, which is, you know, what's worthy of our finitude and, you know, at the risk of personal stories here, but, um, two things, a couple of ways to connect. Um, and one of my friends, when I told him this story, he, he said, now I know why you're so weird. But I, I was under 10, um, sitting in a church, um, hearing a sermon on hell. Just this, the, the whole, the, the lake of fire, all this gnashing of teeth, just really, really graphic uh, uh, preaching. And I started thinking to myself, well, what's the alternative here? as a child. Um, that was weird. But I realized at that moment that the thing I feared more than that lake of fire that the preacher was describing was not existing at all. And, and in that, in that, I think it drove a lot of my decisions as I went forward and, and trying to figure out things um, to where when I read Lord of the Rings, um, like three or four years later, um, as a, 11 or 12 year old. I'm not exactly sure how old I was the first time I read it, but the idea on Tolkien that, that humanity's gift is finitude, that, that the elves and all these have this, these 
incredibly long lifespans or immortality on on Middle Earth, but humanity's gift was of of finitude, and that required humans to to act differently in the world and to interact with you know both the the baddies and the goodies, as we would say in Middle Earth, to where um, Tolkien points out that there's there's a there's a little bit of a a mixing of the two such that, you know, the hobbits have to point it out, but it's, you know, that, that finitude of humanity, especially is, is such a huge thing in Tolkien. And I think that, that when we, when we as human beings find what is worthy of our finitude of being here, what is that? And, and as Wesleyans where, where I am, uh, you know, that, that means how do we respond to our inner communities? Um, what are the things that we do because everyone else's life is finitude as well, what do we do to improve those? And do we truly believe that the direction we've taken and the risk we've taken is worth uh, helping others and, and drawing them into that same risk? So um, the worthy of finitude, I think, is just important. And I, and I know people can get into fatalism with that, but I, I don't think that's where you're going. Even even if we're talking about eschatological hope and, and different understandings there, I think the fact that that here on earth, um, as embodied people, um, how we react to our finitude and the finitude of others drives, I believe, the direction we go with that risk. And so I'd like you to talk a bit about uh, being worthy of finitude. Oh, wow. What a great story, man. And I... I... I love the idea of seeing finitude as actually the greatest gift. Um, it, it's it's not, and it's not a theodicy, right? So, for listeners who don't know what that means, theodicy is the idea that we justify suffering and evil and difficult stuff because it provides opportunities for a greater good. It's not that. I actually have an anti-theodicy philosopher, but the idea of seeing finitude as a gift is anchored. In a story I tell maybe in the last chapter that's that's worth giving just the highlights of, this, this Kierkegaard scholar with whom I worked early who invited me into the life that I now live in many ways, David Kangas, he ended up dying very young. When I had him as a professor, he was much younger than I am now. I'm 46 currently. I think he was in his late 30s when I had him as a professor. He ended up dying in his early 50s from cancer, very tragically, and when he got the news that he had stage four cancer, it was terminal. They gave him roughly six months or so to live. He wrote an email, a letter to this group of folks that were good friends and a couple former students and different things. I was one of them received it. And in that letter, he goes through, you know, here's the news I've gotten. Here's what they've told me, et cetera. And there's two things though, that stand out. And again, I go into much more detail in the book, but the first thing that stands out to me about this letter that he sent is a, he says the doctor kept telling him, I'm just so sorry. I'm so sorry. There's just not much we can do. We're, we're going to try to try to you know prolong the time you have, but we're just not going to be able to cure this. It's incurable, et cetera. And David's response was, well, doc, when did you ever think you were going to cure me of my humanity? <laughs> right? Like it's such a good move back. Now, I don't think I'd have the fortitude, the virtue to be able to be in that headspace in that moment. But he even says something like, you know, uh, 
I've never thought the human condition was an ailment from which a cure was to be sought. A view that I couldn't help explaining to the physician, given my status as professional philosopher. Like th- that's Socratic level awesomeness. That that's when Credo shows up to Socrates and says, Hey, you know, like the Princess Bride, we've got two white horses out back. Let's let's hit the bricks, Socrates. Come on. And Socrates says, Oh, wait a minute. First, let's do some philosophy and decide if leaving is in fact the most virtuous alternative of the ones available. Like that's insane. We all would jump with the guy and flee. Socrates says, only if it's the best thing to do. And David's response is effectively, Doc, let me disabuse you of the idea that your goal or your task was to make me not human. And then he says at the end of the letter, which always gives me chills and in some ways convicts me daily when I I try to do the best I can and realize how far short I have fallen. He ends the letter by saying, but in the end, there is the unmanageable, but we would be trivial beings without it. So onward with my day. I'll repeat that. In the end, there is the unmanageable, but we would be trivial beings without it. So onward with my day. That line is what I mean by going camping with Kierkegaard. That line is what I mean by thinking of finitude as not something to overcome or ignore or distract ourselves away from because we've got enough money and enough status and enough power not to have to attend it. Finitude is not similarly fatalistic, depressive, being overwhelmed by the thought of death, painting our fingernails black, listening to the cure or Morrissey all the time. Like that's also a bad option in my opinion. You know, with, with apologies to all the Smiths fans running around. It's instead an invitation to say the ultimate choice is the choice of Sisyphus. Given that you're not going to get the rock to the top of the hill, like given that you're not going to achieve immortality, given that you're not going to let your projects be the ones that last forever. How then do you move forward? Do you say, but I got my rock and I've got a reason to keep pushing it and I'm going to do the very best I can? Or do you say, this is a waste of time. This is stupid. I'm not even going to try. And for me, the opportunity to live a life of not only humility and hospitality, but gratitude, which I have a whole chapter just about those three ideas. Gratitude names for me what it looks like to receive the gift of finitude in a non-depressive, non-fatalistic, non-awful way, but also without rose-colored glasses, that this is amazing. No, this means our vulnerability will often yield grief and suffering and difficulty as I say in an essay that's not in this book, you know, I don't believe that God prevents us from needing therapists. I just think that God goes with us to therapy. And that notion is part of what, what's worthy of your finitudes trying to get at. It's trying to remind all of us that all of us are faced with that question. And what is really screwed up is that some people don't have the luxury to be able to have the time and space to wrestle with it. That's injustice to me. And similarly, we reward and celebrate and applaud and want to be like the people who act like they don't have to ask it because of their success, their status, their power, their wealth, whatever. 
And I want to say both of those moves are fundamentally inadequate relative to what defines the human condition. So what's worthy of your finitude is a question that I try daily to ask myself without getting overwhelmed by it, right? We don't want to then, you know, end up saying, oh my goodness, should I eat this protein bar or that salad? What's worthy of my finitude? I don't know. I'll never, no, th th we'll never be able to move forward. It's not meant to like make us hand wringing, always anxious. Am I doing it good enough? Am I doing it good enough? That's the very kind of fundamentalist idea of God as this, you know, taskmaster. My idea is more, look, whether you even articulate God as a word you use or not, I'm pretty sure that hope is something we should cultivate. I'm pretty sure that faithfulness names hope better than success does. And I'm also fairly sure that if you try to live faithfully as the response to what's worthy of my finitude, you're probably going to navigate successes without becoming arrogant. And you're going to navigate failures without being destroyed. And that seems like a pretty good place to be because that's probably going to give us the strength, the courage, the resilience, the fortitude, and the humility to invite others also to walk and talk with us along the way, right? And so I do a lot of metaphors with being on the trail and riding with others and, you know, giving the right away to people climbing when you're bombing downhill. And all of those examples are ways of trying to stress that relational dimension. Once you decide what's worthy of your finitude, it's not a once and for all kind of thing. It's a thing that you keep doing. You keep making decisions. You keep moving forward. As a practical suggestion, I don't try to answer that question for other people, right? Faithfulness is not an algorithm. It's not a five-step program for how to live. It's a name for be intentional. Be on purpose. Own the decision. Recognize that you're called to more than being an employee, right? But I will say, I encourage people, like when I give talks at business meetings and stuff about these ideas, I'll say to them, let me ask you, when you set goals, which again, a lot of business folks are big fans of goals and that's fine. And I think goal setting is not necessarily a success orientation. It's just being strategic, right? And I say, when you set goals, are all of your goals things that can be accomplished at a specific time? <clears throat> Make partner, check five o'clock on a Wednesday, <laughs> right? Get tenure, check 2.30 on a Tuesday afternoon. Like we can check boxes in these ways. Make my first million dollars or make $10 an hour. Like whatever the box is, wherever we find ourselves, get married, find a partner, you know, be whatever it is. We check these boxes. Compare those kinds of goals, which again are not bad goals. They're only bad if that's what gives us meaning in life. Compare those to becoming goals or faithfulness goals. Be a good father. Well, that's not a thing I'm going to do on a Tuesday because if I had like the best fathering day, I should leave my family on Wednesday maybe because I'm only going to go down from here. But that's entirely bizarre. Or imagine, be a good professor. Oh, I taught the best class. I now resign because I, I've achieved it. This isn't how those things work. Be kind. I was so kind last Thursday morning. Like That's not how kindness works. So the idea is if we are faithful, we'll realize that the goals really that probably should be the ones that are kind of overriding are the kinds of goals that don't have temporal duration and endpoints. 
but they define us. Aristotle would call this character. What character do you hope to live toward? And that's the other way that I ask what's worthy of your finitude. The other version of that question is you are who you're becoming. So are you okay with that? <laughs> right. And, and it might be the case that you keep saying, ah, I'll fix myself later. Once I get the partnership, once I get the Porsche, once I get out of debt, whatever it is, then I'll be. And the problem is you won't because you'll have become the person that the person who didn't want to make that a priority becomes. So my suggestion is not read this book. It'll tell you how to live or how to find purpose. Read this book because it invites you to think purpose matters. And it's going to help you recognize some signposts of when it might be the case we're starting to get lost. And maybe it'll help you realize what it looks like to pull out your compass and try to get your bearings a little bit more effectively. Oh, that's good. I like that. Um, and I, I think anybody that that thinks philosophy is not important. Um, when I was 19, I kind of thought that. I, I had a great philosophy of religion professor. He was, he was originally from Scotland. And I would sit in the old Burton building at Lipscomb and listen to him. And he sounded passionate, but I thought philosophy doesn't matter. It just didn't seem practical to me as a 19-year-old. Uh, but a year later, uh, there's a series of one-act plays on the campus. And um, the grad assistant in one of my Greek courses was was directing one of those. And he said, I, I think you want to come to the one-acts, you know, see what they're like. So I went to the one-acts, and, and his was was uh, the, the last one. It was Sartre's No Exit. And, <laughs> and uh, just seeing that that play, just in all of its existential horror in some ways, struck a nerve such that I went back and I read Kierkegaard again because I knew Kierkegaard was existentialist. And I'm like, okay, I need to understand this and understand what, what we were talking about with Kierkegaard. So um, I think things like that, um, things like Camping with Kierkegaard, the book, which is very accessible and um, a lot of anecdotal stuff, but I, it's very practical uh, in terms of how philosophy works. But in that vein, I have a question for you. And that is um, if Kierkegaard were alive, in the 20th century, especially, uh, would there be a 90s hip hop group that he would be most drawn to? Man, this might be my favorite question that I have gotten on all of my uh, book conversations so far. Wow. Um, while while I, I try to find a good answer to that, I, I will say one of, in relation to Sartre and stuff, one of the titles I flirted with. Again, I, I just couldn't pass up the alliteration and, you know, and also for what it's worth, I realized Kierkegaard has a kind of traction with a lot of folks that I kind of wanted. Uh, it also, for what it's worth is just enough intimidating to kind of make people like, what is that? Right. Which I also think is a good thing rather than just immediately dismissing for what it's worth. It's part of why I identify as a Pentecostal because there's a lot of, huh? What is that? Instead of, I mean, I no longer identify as evangelical because I go, I know those people, <laughs> right? Uh, but one of the other titles I flirted with was just existentialism at the trailhead. 
And the idea was trying to think about, because really it's not a book about Kierkegaard. It's a book that draws on Kierkegaard and the existential tradition in broad ways, right? And so um, the idea of thinking with Sartre also happens very frequently. There's a lot of Sartre in this book. But I, I stayed with Kempe with Kierkegaard just because I kind of want to give him pride of place because uh, of the way that he's influenced me. 90s hip hop band. Wow. I I think I'll, I'll give three possibilities that speak. This is such a, a bad answer because I'm, I'm punting. But I'm going to give three possibilities that speak to different aspects in Kierkegaard. And so maybe for listeners who don't know a bunch of Kierkegaard, this will highlight some of the big ideas that he has. So A, I would say Kierkegaard would be someone like uh, Gangstar guru from gangstar in particular because he's a little bit out of step with what was mainstream gangstar never quite had in my opinion the fame that they deserved um you know they 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 didn't reach the heights that i think were warranted and guru i think is one of the best lyricists and and flow masters of all time and so kierkegaard similarly in his own time, just kind of didn't get the traction that I think he deserved. He self-published most of his books. He, at the end of his life, was being mocked by the press. Um, and and I think that it's only in retrospect that we have celebrated him, realized how influential existentialism unfolds in light of him in many ways. And I think a lot of that's now true, right? We look back and we're like, oh my gosh, like Guru was was doing stuff that now people really get and understand. So I think in that sense, Gangstar pops to mind. In another sense, uh, it's got to be Wu-Tang. And the reason is Wu-Tang is this collective. There's not just one of them. And they all have like 19 different AKAs. They, they go by all these different names, right? I mean, Method Man is also, you know, Big John Stud. And, and you had all of these different um, personalities that they would flip into and stuff. And... You can kind of hear Kierkegaard, he writes under pseudonyms, as I mentioned earlier. You can kind of hear Kierkegaard having, like in his um, little essay late in his life called On My Point of View as my, of my Work as an Author, where he's kind of like coming clean. Oh, it turns out I was all those people. I mean, it's almost like that thing that Wu-Tang does at the beginning of every song. You know, <laughs> the RZA, the JZA, Inspected Deck, <laughs> the Old Dirty Bastard, Raekwon the Chef, the Method Man, like... It's like he's listing all of the names, all of the people, all of the identities, and they all come together into this thing called Kierkegaard. And the same is true with this thing called the Wu-Tang, right? Um, and then the third example or, or possible instance that I would give <laughs> would be, um, I, I really think that Kierkegaard at some level was never really about the business of becoming famous or a rock star. He was doing this stuff because he thought it needed done, right? He He's writing almost in some ways to himself. He says he's seeking that single individual that he wants to call his reader, not the masses. He's ad advocates entirely. We turn away from the applause of the herd, the public. And in that sense, I would say, you know, someone like uh, Talib Kweli, who it was famously, I mean, he's, he's a big deal now. Again, all the old hip hop heads, of course, know him. He was part of Black Star with Most Def and an amazing, amazing, amazing rapper. But those who are kind of deep in the culture also realize that 
Jay-Z has this famous line where he says of Talib Kweli, you know, if <laughs> that if effectively like, you know, um, he he's somebody who has rhymes like Kweli, right? Like he he's able to anchor himself and recognize the greatness that is that. Um, and that move is really important. It's like, look, I've got that ability. That's just not where I'm choosing. I'm going to go get, get famous. Uh, another famous line that, you know, Jay-Z of course has is where he says, um, you know, uh, I, I used to rhyme like common, but then I made my first million and I ain't rhymed like common sense, which, which is this sort of play on another kind of underground rapper in the nineties common. So I think Kierkegaard would be kind of in that common uh, before he, you know, blew up later, but, you know, common Talib Kweli, the kind of underground scene of amazing, amazing rappers who weren't really in it to be famous, but were in it because they respected the game and they understood what it looked like to be good at it. And I think Kierkegaard for better or worse was often self-indulgent, maybe in ways that an editor could have helped him with. Um, he writes probably 10 words for every one that needed said, but at some level, that's also what makes him endearing is because he's, he's not in this for the paper, as we would say, he he's doing this because he thinks it's something that needs done. And, you know, if people find it and like it, you know, that's good. Right. And in that sense, I guess to maybe move up more in the two thousands, he's kind of like tech nine, who used to say of himself that he's your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. <laughs> and Kierkegaard's kind of like that. He's like, yeah, Kierkegaard's kind of your favorite philosopher's favorite philosopher because he's doing it at some level so purely uh, with such disregard for, um, in some levels, even being understood. Uh, now, I will say my my hope in this book is that it's maximally understandable, it's maximally accessible, but that it's never patronizing. And so I tried really hard not to talk down to an audience um, or dumb down the philosophical ideas, but to present them and express them with stories and examples. And, you know, readers will meet my son and my wife and my former professor and ride with me on the trails and sleep with me by the campfires. And for what it's worth, listen to some hip hop on the way to the trails. Uh, you know, there's an awful lot of Kendrick Lamar in here. There's also a bunch of other genres. Uh, Donovan Woods is one of my favorites, kind of folk indie sort of guy. He's in here a bunch. Um, there's some Lamb of God. There's Rage Against the Machine. I mean, it, it's a book that dates me as in my 40s. <laughs> and and my students read it and they're like, oh, I love this book. I don't know, half of these references. But they're not talking about Heidegger and Derrida. They're talking about like, you know, who is Lamb of God? What's going on? Why is that important? You know, so... We, we do, you know, I, I've, I have some uh, references to bus driver also. In a, he, he's another one that would work, but a little bit late, you know, more thousands. So that, that's, that's a horrible answer. Cause I, I'm, I'm not biting the bullet of, of picking one, but um, those aspects are, are, I think what Kierkegaard would find compelling about some of those, those artists. Well, I think I would, I like to answer those with multiples too, cause it's, it's not really a cheat. I just think it's the way we live <laughs> when we think about, um, we're also complex. I think that's what you show that, that Kierkegaard himself was complex. That existentialism is complex. I mean, we look at a lot of the philosophy, a lot of the philosophers. Um, you know, Brian Zond even does 
in his his book when everything's on fire he has has a lunch between Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and and um you know because they were both um criticizing the same thing they just approached it and came at at different things and and had different hope in the end so um i think i think what you highlight with Kierkegaard is a he was an artist in a way um as a philosopher that he did it uh because he felt compelled to do it um, I, I like, you know, the whole thing of, of being self-published and you're, you're, you're derided by, uh, the press and everything, but, but here we look back and we can recognize that a, a lot of those same criticisms, I think we could, we could aim at the church or other institutions in our time now, um, in the way that the same kinds of, of political and structural and power, uh, structures interplay but i think i think those were great answers uh go in those different directions because it tells us so much about um what philosophy is and and how philosophers in terms work so yeah no i appreciate that yeah it's i I will say the hardest thing about writing this book was knowing how much of myself to let show up in it because i've always argued that philosophy should be personal but it should never be confessional and this is a debate I have within, again, very high level academic, you know, scholarly spaces about what what about Christian philosophy and for what it's worth, I oppose Christian philosophy, not because I'm not a Christian or trying to become one, but because I think Christian philosophy just is theology. And that's awesome and amazing, but that's not what philosophy does. And so these are, you know, high level professional debates. It's kind of like when Iggy Pop of the Stooges, you know, once said uh, that nihilism is best left to professionals. I, I tend to think some of these debates are kind of best left to the professionals because they're distractions. So in this book, what I don't talk about is things like, well, how not to be confessional. Am I sliding too far? Like that's not part of the book. There's no meta philosophy, right? But I wrestled a bunch with how, how could I possibly present stories about my own life and my own decisions that would illustrate the ideas that I think matter without making the book slide into that kind of memoir space, which is just not what I think the book is. And also it's, it's a book that it was funny when, when I was pitching it to editors, my agent was working with different presses and stuff before we decided to go with a boutique press on purpose, a kind of indie label, uh, if you will. Right. Um, very, very punk DIY kind of, uh, launch on this one. And that was intentional, but part of what we kept hearing was all these editors say, well, we just don't see an audience for this. You know, there's so much self-help out there already. And I kept every time thinking, self-help? How is this self-help? That I Self-help requires that we sort of be on this pedestal of expertise to help others get to where we are. And everything I say about my own life in this book is kind of saying, y'all, like, I'm still on the trail, either climbing or descending, but I am not at the top of the mountain standing saying, come join me. Like, that's just not the way the book works. It's not a self-help book. It's a book of what I would describe as broad audience philosophy or public philosophy. But I also realized that we are beings. And again, this is not a radically new or innovative uh, realization, but we're beings who are moved by stories more than we are moved by arguments. And I kept thinking the whole way through of Maya Angelou, who says, you know, they'll forget what you say, they'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And so uh, I assure readers, like whether they 
buy it or not, whether they think that if they read it, uh, no, I, I, that guy's you know full of it. I, I, I assure you that my approach to the stories about my life, about where I stand, about regrets that I've got or things I'm trying to do differently or whatever, all of it was not to be confessional or hold myself up as an example. It was intentionally to say, I don't know how to invite people to feel what these ideas are about without showing what they could look like lived. And the only life that I have any real access to is my own. And so I'll show what they look like in my own life. And I hope it resonates with people. I have been absolutely humbled uh, by the the responses that it's been getting. And um, it's also been really cool because people, uh, I've encouraged them as they buy the book and read it and stuff, you know, to take pictures with it out in the wild, wherever they are. Um, whether that's their backyards or coffee shops or, you know, literally uh, this past week, a guy went skydiving and hired a professional photographer to skydive with him. And so I've got a video of him jumping out and reading the book while he's falling to the earth. <laughs> like talk about risk with direction, right? Uh, but I've got, you know, people send me pictures from Nepal, from uh, Hawaii on top of volcanoes, from Rome. But then some of the ones that mean the most to me are just people saying, hey, I snuck away for a few minutes and I'm drinking a glass of wine and reading your book. Like, so it's not about the grand it's about what Kierkegaard says is the sublime in the pedestrian. You know, it doesn't have to be a thing that we radically break from our past. It might just be that we inhabit our present with a little bit more intensity, a little bit more energy. And it's like the singer songwriter Donovan Wood says, if we always wait for next year to get things fixed or do it right, we'll eventually realize there ain't no next year. And if we, come to that realization. The problem is we normally realize it as Thoreau says <laughs> when we're dying. <laughs> like when we come to die, we realize we haven't lived yet. And as far as I'm concerned, if we learned anything from COVID, it's gotta be that we can't wait until the end of our life to figure out how to live on purpose. And then that implicates us in creating social spaces and communities that make sure everybody is able to inhabit that same decision space. And for me, if, if that is something that encourages folks, then I am thrilled. Um, if it encourages a few of them to buy mountain bikes and, you know, a really good, uh, full face helmet, even, even better, but that is certainly not the, <laughs> the primary, uh, output that I desire. So. You know, I like I like that. Um, I, I think I think you you display the risk with direction by telling the stories and um, something I've been telling uh, the people in our church, especially, is that that when we tell stories, um, we have a much higher impact on people. Um, and like you said, it's the way they feel and they may not even hear the story the way we expect them to hear it or the way we we thought we wrote it or the way we spoke it. But I think um, I think that is an important part of this book, and what makes it accessible is that there are metaphors through story that take us on the journey of what it means um, to to embrace risk with direction as faith, and to be to look at what is worthy of our finitude. And I think that is one of the reasons. A, I think you should buy the book <laughs> if you're listening to this. If you haven't bought it already. Um, but also um, to check out uh, uh, Aaron's website, 
and his um his youtube channel it's it's amazing just you you can hear the the passion and um just the accessibility of what he talks about so um you know i think i think that is an important part of this book and probably why you see it you saw it jump on sales even even in that way and we also see that that kind of punk way of you know the publishers don't want to publish things cuz they don't think they don't think there's an audience, but guess what? I think there's a lot more audiences out there for different things. And I think a lot of people, especially post COVID here are looking for ways to make sense of life in terms of, of even within faith communities, what does it mean um, to exist and, and be, be humans? So. Yeah, no, I think that's very well said. I mean, I I did a video on my YouTube channel. It's probably been a year or two ago now. Um, but I, I used <laughs> the Slayer song of all things uh, called God Hates Us All. It's actually a song called Disciple, but uh, the, the chorus of God Hates Us All. And I was like, man, what a provocative suggestion, an interesting idea. And if anybody's fans of fight club or Chuck Palunic and stuff, I mean, that's, there's also a line in that film and that, that book that kind of echo that same thing. You know, what if it turns out that God doesn't like us? Right. And for me, I was less interested in kind of thinking that through theologically and more interested in what if God genuinely, again, here, you know, God as metaphor or God as literal, however people want to interpret that. But what if God stands opposed to a bunch of stuff that we defend? And that, that, I mean, that's easy to talk about, well, you know, God hates racism or something, right? But for me, the question during COVID was, what if God hates normal, <laughs> right? And, and during COVID, we kept trying, can we get back to normal? Can we get back to normal? And I was like, what if God hates normal? What if normal is the name we give to the obliviousness about loving our neighbor or striving for faithfulness or embodying kindness? What if normal names the acquiescence to a power structure that says certain bodies are the ones that deserve certain respect and other bodies can be ignored or, or uh, abused. What if normal names our inability to see that decision defines existence rather than bills defining existence, right? And, and I'm not, again, being flippant about the fact that for some people that is all that they have the energy and focus to do. But what if God hates normal? And so a as I have developed the YouTube channel, built the website, launched this book, it, it I know it can sound, and there's so many people out there doing this stuff, right? You know, that, oh, I'm trying to be an influencer and subscribe to my stuff and look at what I'm doing and make this blow up. I, I don't know how to fight the the interpretation of what I'm doing as being received as that, because that's precisely the success mentality that <laughs> run, runs normal. And it was funny. My agent told me at one point, he's like, man, I think part of why we're struggling getting this book placed with the big presses is the book critiques the thing the big presses are using as their criterion for accepting the book. And they kept telling me, you don't have enough Instagram followers. And I was like, I don't even use Instagram. I got like three, you know, I've since launched my Instagram you know, <laughs> handle because I'm trying to say, all right, how can I reach people? Not because they should know me, but because I'm trying to find ways to introduce them to this cloud of witnesses, the existential thinkers who maybe invite them to be a little bit more invested in where they are and why it matters. And so, yeah, I, I do hope that people will check out my website, jaronsimmons.com. I do a monthly newsletter. It comes out the first of the month. 
You can get subscribed there at the website um, and also go over to YouTube philosophy where we find ourselves. I do weekly videos there on YouTube. And then, of course, I'd love it if they pick up a copy of the book. It's available in ebook, Kindle format, also in paperback there on Amazon. You can also buy a hardback um, for people who refuse to purchase from Amazon. That's also cool. They can go to bookshop.org where they can buy the hardback version uh, or an e-version through independent booksellers. Um, it's available by order through any of the bookstores that they normally frequent. So they can get it any way they want. Um, it's unlikely to be you know, on an end shelf or an end cap at Barnes & Noble anytime soon. And so for what it's worth, I really, really, really appreciate any work that people can do, again, not on my behalf, but on the behalf of ideas that matter to spread the word, to tell a friend about it, tell a neighbor about it. Um, I, I hope that people will unwrap a lot of copies of the book at Christmas because this book, I think in many ways would be a great new year's uh, invitation. You know, maybe this year our resolution is to just ask more frequently what's worthy of my finitude. Am I doing things I can to live toward that? And uh, anybody that wants to reach out to me, I am maximally available by email, simmonsphilosopher at gmail.com. They can also follow me on Instagram, simmonsphilosopher on Twitter, um, Jair and Simmons. And I've also got a, a professional Facebook page. I, I try to keep my personal page a little bit more restricted just because there's so many pictures of my son, <laughs> like, you know, date night with my wife and stuff. Uh, but Jair and Simmons PhD is also a professional page. All these links are available on the website. They can reach out to me. I would love to be on their podcasts. I would uh, love to Zoom with any book groups. If there's a youth group or a Bible study group that decides, hey, let's take a different move and let's read this book for a few months or a few weeks or whatever, I will Zoom with them for free. I'll do anything I can to try to get these ideas in the hands of as many people as possible because I think ultimately, even if they forget my name, maybe and even if they forget Kierkegaard's name, Maybe they will do a better job of knowing the name of their neighbors and realize that uh, God hates normal where we ignore each other and we interpret each other only in terms of our political allegiances, our, our social status, and what we can do, what others can do for us. And this book is a radical departure from, from that approach. And uh, I'm, I'm honored that it is in print, and I hope that people continue to find it to be a resource in helping them live on purpose. Awesome. So, yeah, I, I love that. The idea of uh, God hating normal. I think uh, my wife's going to laugh at that when I tell her because she's going to say it's not an excuse. So, but um, I, I, I really do thank um, Aaron for you for joining me today. I thank you for being able to get this story out. Um, thank you for writing the book. Um, like I said, it, it is an amazing book and I do hope people do take the time to pick it up and read it. And I will link to uh, Aaron's website and where you can get all that goodness that he talks about with YouTube and uh, the newsletter um, in the show notes of the podcast here. But uh, I just want to remind you all that we're going to try to keep doing conversations like this uh, with thinkers, with philosophers, with theologians, uh, with pastors, with all kinds of just, just people who have amazing stories to tell uh, like I hope we all can eventually. So uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Brandon, and uh, best wishes on the podcast. Whatever I can do to bring attention to the amazing work you're doing, of course, I'm down, man. And uh, thank you again to all the listeners. Thanks for spending time with us. And you know, I really hope that we get to meet each other on the trails soon. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to the Parson Brown Podcast. I hope you enjoy what you've heard, and if you did, please subscribe. Thanks for joining us on this journey.